are continuing our study of Galatians tonight. And as we do so, we're, we've been talking a lot about the law versus grace. And we're going to keep talking about the law versus grace because that's so much of what Paul is all about in the book of Galatians. That's the threat that was facing the church. There were people coming to the Galatian church saying, hey, you guys are Christians and that's fine. And salvation by grace alone, through faith alone is only part of the story because now in order to really be accepted by God, now you've got to do X, Y, and Z. And so Paul's been writing against that. And he's been trying to show us that, that Jesus is better, that grace is better than the alternative. My wife, over almost 14 years now of marriage, has become quite a good cook. And I often look forward to, to eating the meals that she's prepared and that she's labored to, to prepare for our family. But my kids don't have the most refined palate, especially my three and four-year-old. Um, even my, my eight-year-old, even my daughter, if you ask her, what's your favorite food, Annie? She's going to tell you Kraft macaroni and cheese. Um, she would eat that every single meal of the day for the rest of her life. I'm not kidding you. She would, that's where, what her answer would be right now. And so sometimes my wife will be in the kitchen and she's making this great meal that I'm looking forward to. My 11-year-old is looking forward to. We're excited to eat it and enjoy it. And it's so good when we actually eat it. But then uh, two or three of my kids are sitting there going, yeah. I don't know, I'd rather have Kraft macaroni and cheese than this. Um, these are the same kids, by the way, that when we give them the Mary Chon cup of noodles, they're like, this is the best thing I've ever tasted. So again, palate is not the most refined uh, in the, the three and four-year-olds or even the eight-year-old. But the point is, sometimes we want to choose the lesser rather than the greater because we're fooled into thinking that the lesser is better than the, the, the greater. That meal that my wife has prepared is way better than Kraft macaroni and cheese, way better, right? But my kids are sitting there going, no, I'd rather have this because they don't know enough to appreciate what they have in the meal that their mom has prepared for them. Well, sometimes as believers and followers of Jesus, we to or drawn into this whole idea that we can justify ourselves. We can make ourselves more lovely to God. We can make ourselves more acceptable to God. And what we're doing there is we're preferring the lesser over the greater. The greater is Jesus is better. The greater is Jesus did it all. The greater is Jesus paid it in full. The lesser is, no, now I've got to make up. I've got to do. I need to do. I should do. I ought to be doing. I must do. And if I don't, God doesn't love me. And Paul's writing against that. And he's going to write against that even more tonight. And his shock level is increasing. I mean, it, it, we looked at it back at the beginning. Paul says, I'm astonished in chapter one, verse six. He says, look, I'm blown away that you would be deserting the gospel, that you would be chasing this gospel of works-based righteousness. And we're going to get into this chapter tonight. And he's going to say this, look at chapter three, verse one. He starts out by saying, oh, foolish Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians. He says, who has bewitched you? Who's put you under a curse? He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by hearing and faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. And we're going to stop right there. Next week, we'll get into Abraham. But Paul starts out and he says, man, what are you thinking? He says, oh, foolish Galatians. This is tough love from Paul. This is like Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples after the resurrection. Do you guys remember that in Luke chapter 24? 
Jesus shows up with the two disciples that are on their way to Emmaus. They're leaving Jerusalem. They've just seen and witnessed the crucifixion. They haven't heard about the empty tomb yet, and they're crushed, and they're perplexed, and they're beaten down, and and they're defeated, and they're walking back, and Jesus shows up, and he's got a divine appointment with these guys on this road to Emmaus, and he walks up to them, and he comes up along them, and he keeps them from recognizing who he is, and he says to them, hey, what's, what's up? Why are you guys so upset? Why are you so sad? And they look at Jesus, and they say, do you not know what happened here? Are you the only one, they say, are you the only one in Jerusalem who's unaware of what just happened? This dude that was here and he was an amazing teacher and did amazing things. They say in the text, we thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was the one that we wanted, the one that we were looking for. But hey, look, you know what? He just was crucified. He was just killed by the Romans. He's not our guy. And so we're going about the rest of our lives. We're going back to life because what else are we supposed to do? And it says in the text that Jesus responds to them and he looks at them and he says to them in Luke 24, 25, oh, foolish ones. It's the same word, same word that Paul uses here. He says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then if you know the rest of the story, Jesus gets into the Bible and he unpacks the Bible for them. And he says, look, here's everything about the crucifixion. This should not have caught you guys off guard. And now that you can look back at the cross, hey, look, this is everything about the crucifixion. And then all of a sudden their eyes are open. They see this as Jesus and they're like, I thought this was something different about this guy. But Jesus is patient with them, but he's rebuking them, but he's doing so gently and lovingly as kind of a, a tough love moment with the, the, the master to the disciples there. And he says, oh, foolish ones. Well, that's what Paul is saying here in Galatians 3. He's saying, oh, foolish Galatians. What are you doing, Galatians. What are you thinking, Galatians? Clearly, you're not thinking, Galatians. See, Paul's escalating the argument here, and he's going to go even harder after them. And and you say, well, why? Why, Paul? Why are you so vested here? Well, one of the reasons is because Paul had a hand in planting the churches that he's writing to. The churches that were in Galatia, Paul had a hand in, in starting those and being a part of their birth, right? So Paul loves them just like we love the church in Huntington Beach or the church in Tustin or the church in Boise. We love those churches. They're dear to us because we were part of their infancy, part of them getting up and off the ground. And that's the apostle Paul with these churches. And then beyond that, Paul also had a hand in leading some of these people to Christ and sitting down and sharing the gospel with them and and telling them like, hey, look at what happened to me. Look at who I was, and this is what God did in my life, and now I want you to know that God can do the same thing in your life, that you can be saved as well, because I was, I was killing Christians, right? And God saved me, so what's your excuse? You should put your faith in the gospel. See, Paul was sharing the gospel with these people, and they were putting their faith in Jesus, and they were coming to faith in Christ, and so now that they are drifting from the gospel, Paul is heartbroken over this. He's perplexed. He's astonished after this, and he's also calling them alongside in, in, in like a loving parent, he's giving them a a rebuke here saying, look, you're acting like a foolish person. You're acting like somebody who's not thinking about what they're doing. He says, who has bewitched you? It's a word that only appears here in the entirety of the Bible. And it's a word that means to be put under a spell. It's a word that literally has the idea of giving the evil eye to someone that you like look at somebody and captivate them and then you get them into a trance with the way that you look at them. That was the kind of the cultural understanding of this word that Paul uses. He's like, clearly you guys must be under a spell because that's the only reason that y'all would be falling for what's being preached to you right now. 
Because the gospel that I preach to you is the only true gospel. The stuff that you're following is nonsense. It's foolishness. So he says, who has bewitched you? Remember last week, because this is all in context, so this wouldn't, they wouldn't have had a break in between this. But Paul said this last week. He says, look, if, our, if, if our, in our endeavor, verse 17, to be justified in Christ, we too were to be found sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? No. For if I rebuild the law, that which I tore down, I, I, I'm just going to show that I'm a sinner. The law can't save me. All it's going to do is show me that I'm a sinner. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And then that great verse, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ now lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? See, he's writing them going, you're living as though Christ didn't need to die. Because if you can be justified by obedience to the law, which is what they were being taught, then what's the point of the cross? There's no point of the cross. If you can make yourself right before God without the death of Jesus, then you don't need Jesus. And that's why Paul is so urgent with them. Who has bewitched you? He says who, and it's singular there. And then the, the implication there is he knows the answer. The answer is the evil one. Satan has bewitched you. Satan has blinded your eyes, blinded your mind. Satan has, has introduced this false teaching into your midst that's causing you to go after it. The great enemy, Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians eleven three of Satan. 2 Corinthians eleven three, Paul writes, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will also be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So Paul's saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, look, I'm afraid that Satan's gonna get in the church and he's gonna start leading some people astray. That your thoughts, just like Eve was led astray, that you're gonna be led astray, that your thoughts are gonna be corrupted, that you're gonna be led to, to, to depart from the sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He says, who has bewitched you? And then he makes this statement. He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. What does that mean? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Does Paul mean that they were all there in Jerusalem when, when Jesus was executed on the cross? No. What it means there is, is it, it means Jesus was publicly proclaimed, might be a better translation than portrayed. He was proclaimed, he was held up for you to see and to look at as what? As, as crucified. In other words, Paul's saying, look, I didn't leave you in the dark on this. I made sure you understood the crucifixion of Jesus. He's saying, I made sure that you saw the cross for what it was, that the cross is your hope for justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, and that comes by grace alone. Paul's saying, I preached to you the gospel and I did it faithfully. He would write in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see, Paul understood, and in even 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, I, I, I deliver to you as a first importance what was also delivered from, to me, and that is that, that Jesus Christ was crucified. See, Paul's reminding them of the cross and wants to get their eyes back on the cross because that's what they've forgotten. That's what they've drifted from. He wants them to remember the power and the impact of the cross. Think about Peter again, right? Think about Peter. In the end of Jesus' life, when he's arrested, what's Peter doing? What does he do three times? Denies Jesus to a servant girl. 
Okay, so it's not like this is Pontius Pilate that's hauled Peter in before him going, hey, Peter, I'm going to turn you over to them and you're going to be crucified right alongside Jesus if you tell me that you're his friend. No, this is a, this is a servant. This is a slave. This is somebody with, with really no power to do anything. And she's in the, the courtyard where Peter's hanging out outside trying to overhear and find out what's going on. And she's like, wait a minute, you were with Jesus. And Peter says, no, I wasn't. I, I, don't, I don't know that man. And a little while longer, no, I, I recognize your voice and your, your, your dialect. You're one of his followers. He, she's he says, no, I'm, I, I'm not. And then a third time, and he starts to swear and say, I don't know that man. So that's Peter before the cross. Peter after the cross, Acts chapter 2, stands up and begins to preach one of the greatest sermons that's ever been preached. And he starts by saying, look, this Jesus whom you crucified, whom you put to death by the hands of lawless men, and he's, he's preaching to a room full of Jews. What changed for Peter? The cross, Right? the resurrection of Jesus, understanding the significance of the cross, realizing that that's his entire hope, that that's where salvation is to be found, that that's the most important thing is the cross, right? Or how about James? Think about James, Jesus's half-brother. James was also the, the son of Mary and Joseph. And so James was there in early in Jesus's ministry in Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. Jesus has somebody come to him while he's teaching the crowds and somebody comes in and says, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers, they're, they're outside and they need to see you. You guys remember that? And Jesus makes that statement back to him. He says, hey, look, these are my mother and my brothers over here, the people that are doing my will. But the reason that Jesus' family was there was not because they were like, oh, dude, we ran out of milk. Can you pick up some milk on the way home? They weren't there because they were like, hey, you know, we were thinking we should have a family reunion next week and we wanted to get your opinion of it. No, they were there because they were embarrassed about Jesus. Jesus was causing a stir. Jesus was causing a scene. And it also said in, it says in the New Testament that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him at that time. And so they're there to grab Jesus to bring him home so that he doesn't continue to bring shame upon the name of their family. Well, what happens to James? James becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. James writes scripture. James dies for his faith in Jesus. What changed? The cross. See, the cross impacts us. The cross is powerful and it should be powerful. And so Paul emphasizes this idea of the crucifixion here because that was the crux of the issue facing the church in Galatia there. If it had been that they were denying the resurrection, maybe Paul's gonna go uh, to, the, to 1 Corinthians 15 like he did there in that section where he's saying, hey, look, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain. But that wasn't what their problem was. Their problem was they weren't trusting in the cross anymore. They were trusting in themselves, or at least they were being tempted to trust in themselves. And so Paul goes after the cross. Crucifixion was a big deal, and I think all of us would agree that it was, but it's a bigger deal, I guarantee you, than any of us, myself included, really understand. Grab your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, Isaiah's writing some 700 years before the crucifixion of Jesus, but he's writing and he's describing what Jesus would endure under the hand of God, writing down God's words, prophesying about what was to happen to Jesus. And Isaiah says this, he says, he was despised, verse three, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not meaning the jewish people we esteemed him not we didn't recognize who he was 
but surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. We thought that God was punishing him and afflicted. No, but he was pierced not for his transgressions, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sins. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace with God. And it's with his wounds that we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has put on him the sin of us all, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Nobody cared, in other words, is what he's saying there. Verse nine, and they made his grave with the wicked, crucified between two thieves, and with a rich man in his death, Joseph of Arimathea, who would go to Pontius Pilate and request for the body to be handed over to him. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, he was the sinless one. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he's put him to grief. Turn back to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a psalm of David. And yet, again, is is under the inspiration of God prophesying of, of what type of death that Jesus would die. You'll recognize the first verse if you know anything about the cross. Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day and you do not answer and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel and you are fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them to you. They cried and were rescued in you. They trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Sound familiar? Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. The sarcasm there. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. And you made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint, which would happen in crucifixion as the body was racked under its own weight. My heart is like wax melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. My, my tongue sticks to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me and a company of evildoers encircles me and they have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me and they divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. See, that's describing for us a lot of the the pain of the crucifixion. And in a very sobering way, 
such that it led one poet whose name is W.H. Auden to write this, Christmas and Easter can be subjects for poetry. Christmas and Easter can be subjects for poetry. In other words, the birth of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. But Good Friday, he says this, like Auschwitz, cannot. The reality is so horrible, it's not surprising that people should have found it a stumbling block to faith. So here's a, a poet saying, we can write poems about the birth of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, but Good Friday we dare not, because just like Auschwitz, we cannot ever come close to understanding the fullness of the weight of the, the, the horrific nature of it. There's a weightiness to the cross that unfortunately is so easily lost on us. You saw this slide pop up briefly earlier, but this is from Mel Gibson's directed movie called The Passion of the Christ. And I remember when this movie came out because there was so much controversy surrounding it because it was a movie about the life of Jesus that got rated R. Everybody was up in arms about that. Why is it rated R and what's going on? And parents were like, well, I'm not going to let my kids go see it. And, you know, all angry about it. Well, the reason it was rated R was because of this scene and the scenes leading up to this, of the, the arrest, the trial, the beating, the flogging, the crucifixion of Jesus. And I would argue that since the actual event, I don't know that there's ever been another time where we've been able to, to come even close to seeing what it would have been like for the Son of God to die for us. But here's the problem. Even this falls short of capturing what Jesus endured on the cross. Because remember what Paul said, I, I've determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. See, when we preach Christ crucified, we preach more than the blood and the gore of the cross. When we preach Christ crucified, we preach more than the torture and the humiliation of the cross. Those were elements of it to be sure. But when we preach Christ crucified, what we're ultimately preaching is the satisfaction of God's full wrath against your sin and against my sin poured out on the cross. And that's something that no movie could ever portray. And we watch this and we cringe and we see that. But then at the same time, we know that Mel Gibson's around the corner directing it, calling cut and then going up to Jim Caviezel saying, hey, we need to work on your grimace a little bit more. We know that as Jesus is being paraded through the streets of Jerusalem as we're watching The Passion of the Christ, that really it's just a movie set. And there's Mel Gibson wearing his, you know, trendy French hat there, talking with him about how he look, needs to look like he's in more pain and more sorrow as he's walking through the streets. See, our best made films and movies can't even scratch the surface of what Jesus actually endured for you and I on the cross. And y'all, this is why Paul says it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified because he didn't want them to get comfortable with that. He didn't want them to, to fail to remember the full weight of the cross, that it wasn't just about the physical suffering, but it was far more than that. It was about the fact that that full wrath of a holy and just God was emptied on Christ, on the cross, when it should have been us. And the Galatians were drifting from that forgetting that, treating the cross with contempt. And that's something that we need to make sure that we are guarding against and making sure it doesn't happen. Point number one tonight is this. What happened at the cross is bigger than we can fathom. What happened at the cross is bigger than we 
can fathom, can imagine, can understand. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try. But it, what it does mean is that we shouldn't ever get to the place where we're like, oh yeah, the cross, I get that. That happened. That's good. I'm glad it happened. I've got Jesus. I wear the cross around my neck. I've got it on a t-shirt with an arrow that people ask me, what, it, what does that mean? Now let's move on and let's, let's, let's get to other things. Let's talk about love and grace and mercy and those things. Those, those are all good things, but we can't move past the cross. I want to get uncomfortable for a minute if we can. Let's talk about hell. Hell exists, yes? It's an actual place the scriptures teach about. In fact, Jesus teaches more about hell than heaven. You've probably heard that. And it's true, he does. But let's talk about hell for a moment if we can. What is hell like? Well, Matthew 25, 46 says it's a place of eternal punishment. Eternal punishment. Eternal is a word that means what? Unending, right? Revelation 20.10 says that hell is a place where those there will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Day and night forever and ever. Matthew 25.41 says that hell is a place where there is eternal fire. Revelation 14.11 says hell is a place where the smoke of torment goes up forever and ever. There's that language again. The smoke of torment goes up forever and ever, and there's no rest day or night. There's no relief. There's no break. There's no escape. Matthew 13, 50 says hell is a fiery furnace and a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jude 1.7 says it's a place of the punishment of eternal fire. Again, that word eternal there. Mark 9.43-48 describes it as a place with unquenchable fire where the worm does not die. Revelation 19 is that it's going to be eventually actually hell and Hades is what it says there in the text is going to be taken and thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Did you guys know that hell is temporary? Yes. The holding place that's called hell is temporary. The punishment is not. It's just the existence of that is because when the new heavens and new earth are created, that's when death and Hades, which is the way that they would have described hell, will be thrown into the lake of fire, which is prepared for Satan and all of his followers. Daniel 12, 2, says that it's a place of shame and everlasting contempt. Shame and everlasting contempt. Luke 16, 23 and 24, it's a place of torment and anguish. Matthew 3, 12, it's a place where the inhabitants burn with unquenchable fire. Jude one thirteen says it's a place of utter darkness, the gloom, the depression of utter darkness reserved forever. Second Peter 2.17 says the same thing, the gloom of utter darkness. A 
again, Revelation 20, 13 through 15, there is where hell is actually taken and thrown into this lake of fire. Revelation 14, 10 says that it's a place where those in, inhabiting it will be tormented with fire and sulfur. But then it goes even further than this, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. The full wrath of God and the judgment of the righteous one of Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain, is going to be present in hell. Hell is not the absence of God. It's the absence of the goodness and grace and mercy of God, but the fullness of the presence of the wrath of God. And then finally, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9 describes it as a place of eternal destruction. So hopefully you recognize and, and you kind of picked up on the theme there of this idea that hell is a place that is eternal, that it's unending, that it's everlasting, that its torment is forever and ever, that there's no rest day or night, that it's an unquenchable fire. And you think about that and, and you hopefully understand as, as we all should that that is what our sins deserve because we have in, offended an infinitely holy God and so the, the price for offending an infinitely holy God is an infinite amount of time in hell and you may say well I, I, I think that's unfair but I'm going to push back and say that I think you understand that concept because here's how it goes you know, if I lie to my four-year-old, I'm a bad dad, right? I am. But if I lie to my four-year-old, can my four-year-old do anything to me? No. Am I going to suffer any consequences really for lying to my four-year-old? Not really. I shouldn't, but I won't suffer any consequences. It's wrong. It's a sin. I shouldn't do it. Now let's ratchet it up. If I lie to my wife, now the consequences begin to introduce themselves a little bit, don't they? because that's going to hurt my marriage. That could have damaging impact on, on my, my marriage. But really, legally, depending on the lie, legally, there's, there's not a whole lot that my wife can do to me. I don't have to worry about jail or anything else like that most of the time in that, that instance. But let's ratchet it up one more level. What if I lie to my boss? Okay, now, my boss can, not only does that impact my relationship with him, but now he can fire me, right? And all of a sudden now, if my boss has fired me, then I am suffering a lot more. The consequences are much greater. It's the same sin as I, I committed with my four-year-old. But now that the authority of the one being offended has gone up, the consequences go up. Okay, forget my boss. What if I lied to a judge? I can be held in contempt of court and face prison. What if I lied to the government? Same thing, right? See, if... if if we take the same sin and, and ratchet up the authority of the one we sin against, we understand that the consequences continue to go up. Now take the one that we're sinning against and put the infinitely holy God in that place and ask yourself now if it makes sense that hell would be eternal. You say, well, why are, we, why are we spending so much time on hell? Why are we proving this point? Paul's not even talking about hell here. You're right, he's talking about the cross. How long was Jesus on the cross before he died? Let's read it. Matthew 27, 45 through 50. Matthew records, Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land. This is when Jesus was crucified at the sixth hour. From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. 
And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling for Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a, a stick and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out there in that ninth hour again with a loud voice and what yielded up his spirit. So from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, how many hours was Jesus on the cross? Seven, eight, nine. How many is that? Three. Okay, let me go back and, and hit some of those words that I just talked about again. Eternal, forever and ever, eternal, forever and ever. Eternal fire, unquenchable fire, shame, shame and everlasting contempt. Unquenchable fire, utter darkness reserved forever. Eternal destruction. If that is what our sins owe God, and Jesus died for our sins, what took place in three hours on the cross is the entirety of the wrath of God that you would suffer for eternity in hell was all delivered on Jesus in three hours on, at the cross. You see where we're going now? And that's why the cross is so much bigger than anything we can wrap our minds around. Mel Gibson can't depict that. Nobody can. That in three hours, Jesus on the cross for you and for me took everything that would take us an eternity. We would never be able to ex exhaust the wrath of God on our own. That's why hell is eternal. Jesus exhausted it in three hours on the cross for us. Think of the enormous amount of suffering and pain and torment that no nails in the wrists or the feet or an openly flayed back from whips could ever even come close to touching. See, that's why Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not because the whips and the glass in the whip shreds. It's because he is suffering the full wrath of God and his anger and his just fury at our sin in three hours. He takes it for all of us on the cross. three hours and we're so quick to sanitize the cross and Paul saying stop forgetting about Jesus in the crucifixion Paul saying I I put him before you I put the crucifixion before you I publicly portrayed it I told you how significant this is and how important this is to you and now you're wanting to go follow the Judaizers that are going hey the cross is cute and everything but it's not enough you also need this and Paul's going I'm astonished this is foolishness what are you doing We're so tempted to take things into our own hands and try to make sure that God is pleased with us because we're good enough people. And what we're doing is we're looking at the cross going, hey, thanks God, that's, that's awesome, but I've got it from here. Or when we trust in our good works and feel like, man, if, if God's gonna love me more, if God's gonna accept me, if I'm gonna be good enough for God, I, I, I need to do more. What we're doing is we're looking at Jesus and his death on the cross in those three hours going, Jesus, thanks, but that's not good enough. That's, that's not good enough for me. I'm going to have to make up some of what you failed at, Jesus. So I need to do X, Y, and Z. This is why Paul says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And then he 
he begins to ask these questions. He says in verse two, let me ask you this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So Paul runs through four questions here to help the the Galatians understand the gravity of what they were buying into when they were buying into this works-based salvation. He starts with this first question. He says, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Why does Paul all of a sudden go to the spirit? Well, because without the spirit, there is no salvation. Because the spirit is the one who regenerates us so that we can be saved, so that we can repent from our sins and put our faith in Jesus. See, that's a work of the spirit. And so Paul's going, let's go back to the beginning of your standing in Jesus. Did that come from your works or from hearing by faith? Let's go to John chapter three for a minute. John chapter three, verses one through eight. Jesus is fresh on the scene and he's causing a stir again and he's doing things that are gaining the attention even of the the religious leaders of the Jews and there's this one guy named what that comes to talk to Jesus he comes to him at night and he becomes one of Jesus' followers later his name is what Nicodemus and Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says hey listen he says this he says rabbi verse 2 we know that you are a teacher who's come from God look we're willing to see that you are a powerful guy For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus doesn't even let him get to a question. He interrupts Nicodemus and he says, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is new to this whole evangelical Christianese language. And so he's like, excuse me, what? And he says this in verse four, he says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he re-enter his mother's womb and be born? I mean, this is, this is how ridiculous this thought is to Nicodemus. He's like, he, what? Jesus answers in verse five, truly, truly, I, I say to you, look, let me say it again. Unless one is born of water and the spirit. There it is. Water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So Jesus in John chapter three is preaching regeneration by the spirit, that you need the spirit to be born again, to be saved. Now Paul's coming along and going, hey, where did that spirit come from? How did you get that spirit? Did that spirit come to you because you're good enough? No. It came by hearing and hearing produced faith. Paul writes on this in in Titus chapter three. Titus chapter three, verses four through seven. Paul says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, being born again, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom God poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Did, Did you see there, Paul's saying, look, this is a work of the Holy Spirit, and it's not because of works, it's by grace that you've been made heirs of eternal life. One more, Romans 8, 9. Romans 8, 9. 
Paul says there, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So this is why Paul is focused in on the Holy Spirit all of a sudden. Hey, did you receive the spirit? Was that by works or was that by hearing and faith? It's a rhetorical question. He knows the answer to that question. See, he knows that it's, it's by hearing and faith that the spirit regenerates us and causes us to be born again. So then he asks this next question. He says, okay, well, then having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Okay, the spirit saved you. So now are you like, hey, thanks for salvation. I've got it from here. I'll take it for sanctification on my own. If you guys didn't listen to PM sermon uh, this past weekend, Saturday night, Sunday morning, jump on, listen, because uh, he's talking about goodness and he's talking about good works. And he brings up this verse in Ephesians 2.10, which comes after, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not, not of yourselves that no one may boast. And then verse 10 says, for we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which have been prepared beforehand for us that we should walk in them, right? And then you go to Philippians 2.11 and 12, which you will in your small groups. And in Philippians 2.11 and 12, Paul's talking about, hey, you need to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, but you need to also know that it's God who's working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so there's this dynamic here where we still need the spirit to be sanctified. We still need God working in and through us to be sanctified. I don't have enough time to go there, but Romans 8, 3 through 11, if you guys go there in your small groups, is all about that relationship of the spirit working through us, that if we're walking by the spirit, we're not gonna carry out the desires of the flesh, that we can, by the spirit, put to de death the deeds of the flesh. So the key to your being perfected, to be made, being made more like Christ is not in you being good enough, holy enough, godly enough, righteous enough it's in god continuing to work in and through you through the spirit conforming you into the image of jesus third question he says did you suffer so many things in vain this is for the church in Galatia specifically because these believers were persecuted for their faith in jesus originally and now all of a sudden they're being tempted to go back to judaism well if they had just stuck with judaism they wouldn't have been persecuted in the first place so paul's like what did you suffer for if now you're going to go back to the law that's crazy. And then he asked the fourth question. He says, look, was it because of your works that God sent the miracles and the spirit to you in the first place? Did God look down at you and be like, wow, look at them. They're so awesome. You know what? I'm going to send the gospel their way is what Paul's asking. And the, the answer is what? Of course not. Romans 5, it was while we were yet sinners and enemies of God that Christ died for us. See, here's the thing, guys. We like to compartmentalize our, our Christianity and we think about God's grace and we're like, well, by grace, I've been saved through faith. Check. And if pressed and somebody came up to you and was like, hey, do you need grace today? You'd be like, oh yeah, absolutely. I need grace today. I need grace to be, you know, a loving person and kind and I need grace. Yeah, grace is good. Grace. I like grace. We should call church grace. But I don't, I don't, I don't think we fully understand how much we need grace. We need grace as much for our sanctification as we did for our salvation. God's grace is as much working in you to make you more like Jesus as it did to make you a new creation in Christ. There's a, a relationship there. It's not like we've taken over now for, for God. Hey, thanks God for doing the heavy lifting by saving me. I'll take it from here. No, God still gets the glory because it's still his grace that's working in us to save us, to conform us more to Jesus. Second point tonight, final point tonight, we've only got two. We need God's grace more than we think we do. We need God's grace more than we think we do. I mean, imagine... My three-year-olds, right? My three-year-old twins. Some of you have babysat for us, so you can really imagine them. Imagine if they all of a sudden were like, hey, mom and dad, you know what? Thanks for the past three years. It's been super great. 
you know, I really appreciate the whole like stay in the hospital initially and the fact, mom, thanks for the carrying me us for nine months and taking care of us, you know, and everything else. And the hospital was great. And then you got us home and you woke up in the middle of the night and changed our diapers. Man, that was crazy. But we're glad that you did that. Um, you know, you fed us. You, you've even taught us to talk. And we can walk now. And you know what? Mom and dad, we're good. We've got it from here. We'll see you later. You think to yourself, that's crazy, right? That's insane. And no godly parent would ever, or no self-respecting parent at all, would ever go, okay, great. There's the door. See you later. But guess, that's what we treat God like. See, you and I are still infants in Christ when we consider that we're going to spend eternity continue to grow more and more and more and more and more in our relationship with him, becoming more and more and more and more and more aware of who he is and how amazing he is. And eternity is going to be a time where we continually find out more about Jesus and love Jesus more. I used to think when we got to heaven, we'd have all the answers. We won't because omniscience, knowing everything, is not a shared attribute of God's. So when we get to heaven, we still are going to spend our days learning more about Christ than about God. So if you think about that, you and I are infants in Christ still right now. And certainly in godliness and holiness. And are we going to look at God and be like, hey, God, thanks so much for all the good things that you've done for me so far, but I'll take it from here. And yet that's what we try to do. You know, in a lot of ways, these false teachers coming in and attacking the church in Galatia, there are a lot of ways like what the Mormons do. Because the Mormons will come in and they will use a lot of the same words that we'll use. But basically for the Mormons, when they talk about words like redemption, what they're talking about is, okay, redemption has put you back at square one. So you're now neutral, but you need to now do all your good works in order to, to really make it. You need to do all your good works to, to earn the higher place in eternity. You need to do all your good works to, to be considered a, a good Mormon. In fact, from the Mormon articles of faith, just so that you don't think I'm bad-mouthing them, from the Mormon articles of faith, their own works, it says this, good works are necessary for salvation. Literally, that's part of their core doctrine and teaching. Good works are necessary for salvation. Oh, and by the way, it also says this in the Book of Mormon. Nephi 25, 23. says, we know that it is by grace that we are saved. And you're like, yes, that's awesome. And then they say this, after all we can do. And you're like, no, that's not awesome. For by grace you are saved after all that we can do. So it's like the Mormons think, well, we're good enough to get halfway down the road and then we need Jesus to just drag us over the finish line. And that's not it at all. We need Jesus to drag us into the starting blocks, to drag us off the starting blocks and to drag us the entire race and to get us into heaven because we can't do any of it on our own. Satan wants us to think, you know what? I'm so thankful God's grace saved me. But then he wants us to think, you know what, grace saved me, but now it's up to me. He wants us to be Christians, but really he wants us to be functional Mormons when we're talking about how we view sanctification. All right, Jesus, now it's, uh, I'll do everything I can. And then if I need a little bit at the end, Jesus, can you, do you mind just helping a brother out at the end? But I've got it from here. Our pitfalls, how do we do this? What does this look like? Let's go through a few of them together. First one is thinking, I need to instead of I want to. If your entire Christian life and your entire process of sanctification is all about, I need to do this, I need to do this, I need to do this, I have to do this, and there's no, I want to do this, I desire to do this, then there's a disconnect. Another thing we can do is we can 
think to ourselves, did that just